And please take your Bibles and turn with me to John 18. Second half of our message, the proper fear of failure. You know, nobody likes to fail. I can't think of a single person, in fact, who lies awake at night dreaming of the failures of the coming day, eagerly anticipating the ways in which they're going to let people down and fail in his purpose. I've never known a man who finds his sense of accomplishment in failing at the tasks that he has been given nor that he has taken on of his own accord. I've known many that are consumed with the fear of failure, but not many who desire failure. I've also known many who sought out for great success and have even been confident in their work, only to realize that their work has been, without their knowledge, rather much a failure. I remember one day back in my teen years when I was roofing, me and the guys got up on a roof, and uh, a lot of times I was capable of laying the shingles and, and those sorts of things, but generally speaking, because of where I was in the pecking order of those guys that had been working there, uh, I, I tended to get the grunt work. You know, these guys had been working there longer than I, unless I was put on a team where I was more senior, which was rare. So these guys had been working much longer than I had in the, in the business, and so I got to do the things like um, carrying the bundles, throwing the shingles off the roof, those sorts of things, and uh, laying the felt, hammering that in. I'll never forget one roof we did. It's a hot day. It's an old roof, a pine wood roof, which means the nails are really hard to get out, kind of hard to get back in. We spent all day on this roof. One day we stripped it, the next day we lay the shingles. So we finished. All the shingles have been laid. We're cleaning up the tools. We're running the magnets to make sure we've picked up all the nails, the whole nine yards. And we step back at the end to admire our handiwork. We looked at the roof and all of our faces just kind of sank. You know, when one looks at a roof, regardless of the shingle type you're using, dimensional shingles have a little bit of a, of a, a different texture to them, but when, when one looks at a roof, you want to see a pattern of the shingle in a general straight order, straight lines. You're looking for straight lines. Well, when we looked up on this roof, we saw something a little bit different. I don't know if you've ever taken a book and maybe you've been reading by the pool or something and that book falls into the water. And then you get out, you know, you get the book out of the water and you, you dry it off and you're slowly, carefully peeling the pages apart so that they don't tear and you're trying to set it out so that the sun can dry it. And when that book is finally dry, you know what the pages look like? Whereas they used to be kind of straight and flat, now they're kind of like this. Well, that's what our shingles look like. They look like a wavy book. They were all over the place. They were up, they were down. It looked terrible. Basically, it looked like the soggy pages of a book. Now, we had given every ounce of our effort to this roof. We had done everything the way we thought it needed to be done. We spent time and energy doing what we thought would make the perfect roof. 
But you know, regardless of how hard we tried or how good our intentions were, we failed to lay an acceptable roof. We continue this evening in the life of Peter regarding the dangers of personal spiritual failure. As I mentioned this morning, I'm not trying to turn this into some sort of fear-mongering session. I'm not trying to turn you into a Christian that has unreasonable fears. I don't want you to think that God stands in heaven angrily looking down, hoping for, expecting, or even just allowing you to fail. I don't want anyone under the sound of my voice to be paralyzed into a life of inaction or rigid legalism because you are afraid that you might just upset God. I don't want any of that to happen. That's not why I'm preaching this message. That's not what John 18 is reflecting to us. But there is a warning here. You say, Pastor, how do we know that we should be focusing on Peter? Because Jesus Christ has just been arrested and the text takes time in all four Gospels to step away from the God of the universe being on trial to look at this man and to watch him fail. There's something the Bible wants us to understand here. And we need to take a look at it closely. The Scriptures teach us that it is right for us to recognize the dangers of spiritual failure. And to fear it enough to place the guards in our lives that are necessary to actively seek out the causes of spiritual failure and to protect ourselves from them. And so this morning, we looked at the first of three of those. The one we looked at this morning was the possible failure of misguided loyalties. Being loyal to other things than the Word of God and to Jesus Christ, His person, His work, His message. And in doing so, we can fall quite unintentionally, into true spiritual failure. Just as when I was younger, I fell quite unintentionally into physical failure when we looked at that roof. We can, quite unintentionally, see and experience spiritual failure if we are not keeping our eyes open and knowing the Word of God. This evening, we'll look at the final two. The final two areas of life and ministry wherein we are in danger of spiritual failure. Not so that we live our lives in fear, but so that we put up the proper protections and we recognize these things as they occur. We'll pick up in verse 15 of John 18. And we'll be looking at verses 15 through 27 this evening. The second area of life and ministry wherein we are in danger of spiritual failure is that we can fail... Secondly, through unwilling associations. We can fail through unwilling associations. And we see this in verses 15 through 18. Look at them with me. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest, and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there, who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. 
And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. In verse 15, we join Peter again as Jesus is taken to the hall of the high priest. Now, as Jesus stated what happened in John 16, 32, all of his disciples have scattered and left him alone. He is there alone with only his father at his side. Yet there were two disciples that, following the initial dispersion, had found their way back to the trial of Jesus Christ. One of those we know was Peter. Peter had cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus had rebuked him, placed the ear back on Malchus, had gone with them, and it says, according to the testimony of Jesus Christ in John 16, they would all scatter, and they did. But now Peter's following. And there's another disciple that we see following as well. Verse 16 tells us that Peter stood at the door without. Not everyone could go into the court of the high priest, particularly so late at night. So he stood at the entrance to this court. There's another though, and he is simply referred to in this passage as that other disciple. In verse 15, another disciple. In verse 16, that other disciple. And he's distinguished only as the disciple that was known to the high priest. Now, we have not mentioned this anonymous disciple since way back when, almost a year ago now, in our book sermon. I don't know if you recall, but we had been talking about the possible um, link between this anonymous disciple and the author of our book, John. Throughout the book of John, there are references to a nameless disciple. In John 13, 23... This nameless disciple is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Here in John 18, 16, he is called that other disciple. We will see this same phrase occur in John 20, verse 2, John 20, verse 3, John 20, verse 4, and John 20, verse 8. We will also see a term, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that term that we saw in John 13. We'll see it come up again in John 19, 26 and John 21.20. And it seems likely that all of these anonymous references to the disciple is the same man. And for some reason, this man is not mentioned. He's only mentioned anonymously. He's only mentioned in description. He's never mentioned by name. And we talked in the book sermon that most likely he's not mentioned by name because he is indeed the author of the book that he is John, the penman, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This disciple, who this one that was here, was present throughout the trial, as well as at the crucifixion. We can safely understand this disciple to be John. John seems to best fit the description since he is mentioned nowhere in the book, even though he was one of the inner three disciples. He was a cousin of Jesus Christ, being the son of Salome, the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. He had ties to the priesthood. We can probably and safely infer that this disciple was John. Regardless, however, this other disciple had gained admittance to the court, and he gained admittance to the court of the high priest because he knew the high priest. This man was known in the court. He'd been there before. He had been around. People recognized him visually, and so they allowed him in. 
Verse 16 tells us he was known to the high priest. This disciple spoke to the woman that kept the door. She was, as it were, the steward of the door to allow certain people in and not to allow certain people in. He spoke to this person and he asked that Peter be let in. Now, as Peter was going through the door, this girl who kept the door asked him, we read in verse 17, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? Now, knowing what we know about Peter, knowing what we heard about Peter this morning, knowing that Peter was a man who says, I will give my life for you. Peter was the man who would say, don't just wash my feet, but wash all of me. Peter was, and we didn't even talk about it this morning, the man that stepped out of the boat and walked on water. Peter was a man of faith. Knowing what we know about Peter, we would not expect him to say what he's about to say. He looks at the woman and he says in verse 17, I am not. I'm not one of his disciples. You have not seen me with him. You've never seen me associating with him. I am not one of his Verse 18 tells us that within this court, there were some servants and some officers that stood around a fire because it was cold. Peter saw Christ enter the hall. Peter heard the false charges brought against him. Peter saw the sham that was this initial trial before Annas, father-in-law to the high priest Caiaphas, And rather than associating himself with Christ, he stood with these officers and these servants and he warmed himself. We live in a country that is not active in its persecution of Christians. We read last week, two weeks ago I believe now, of the persecuted church in the Islamic context. The letter that we have on the back bulletin board is specifically referencing the Christians in Pakistan who, after a sham election, have been blamed for a man losing. And there have been calls for these Christians to be killed, for their communities to be burned to the ground simply because they're not Islamic. We don't live in a country such as that where there's active persecution. By legal right, you and I could go to a local park, we could stand on a wooden box, preach to all passerby. We have the freedom to engage people at their doorstep. We take advantage of that freedom regularly. We have the freedom to engage people on the street or in the store. We can give a tract to the guy in the drive-thru or to the cashier at the restaurant or to the waiter or waitress that serves us. We can boldly witness to our neighbors to our co-workers, to our fellow students. We can place a fish on our car. We can categorize ourselves as Christian or Baptist or born-again believer on our Facebook account. We can do all sorts of things to associate ourselves without any real persecution. But you know, even in this country where persecution is so minimal, there is yet a fear of that association sometimes, isn't there? Perhaps it's not a fear that we would naturally expect. Perhaps it's not a fear that we would um, be 
uh, intentionally having or, or, or uh, fostering, but it can be there. And, you know, it's not a new phenomenon either. The truth of the gospel applies to every man without fail. And the truth of the gospel is naturally divisive. This means that when we associate ourselves with Jesus Christ, when you are out on the playground and you associate yourself with Jesus Christ, when you are at work and you associate yourself with Jesus Christ, when you come to church and associate yourself with Jesus Christ, when you go to the ball field and you associate yourself with Jesus Christ, you are immediately placing yourself on one side of a very distinct line. See, there are a lot of religious people that don't draw distinct lines. There are a lot of religious people out there that are, are uh, ambiguous. I'm going to believe what I'm going to believe, you believe what you believe, and we'll all just get there in the end. I don't really know, this is what I believe, but I don't really know if it's true, and so, so I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. But you know, when we claim Jesus Christ, we are drawing a line. See, because all of those who believe on the name of Jesus Christ and are therefore born again, children of God, are on their way to heaven. And all of those who do not believe on Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, are under the wrath of God and are headed toward judgment in the lake of fire. And the interesting thing about this choice, as we even prayed this evening, is that everyone makes this choice. God has given sufficient revelation in creation and in our conscience and through the Word of God for every man and woman to either accept or reject the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everyone makes this choice. There's no third option. There's no gray area. There's no way around the decision. Every person must choose whether to accept or reject the revelation of God given to them and thus, by extension, the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you think about that, as you think about this decision, the truth of the gospel we recognize that the stakes are very high, are they not? We're not talking about, oh, I made a bad decision, I'll get it right next time. We're talking about, is it appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. We are talking about eternal life or eternal damnation. Naturally, such high stakes, such definitive truths, such strong lines stir up very strong emotions. Many people don't want to hear what you have to say. They demand to stay in ignorance of the gospel. Many people are religious, but they don't believe the teachings of the Bible, and they get offended when you tell them that their way is wrong and your way is right, and that there is indeed only one way. You say, well, pastor, only one way, that's right, only one way. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other way. Others laugh, mock, scorn those who would obey the Word of God. So it makes sense, does it not, that there would be a potential for 
timidity among us. Even Paul. Paul, the great apostle and evangelist, indicated his own difficulties from time to time at openly associating himself with Christ through evangelism. He asked the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6 verses 19 and 20 that they would pray for him. He said, pray for us that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds that, I, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He says, look folks, pray for me that I can be bold like I need to be. Pray for me that utterance would be given to me in order that I may open my mouth and preach the gospel as I ought to preach. This was not just something that came easily to Paul. This was not something that was any easier for him than it was for you. As a matter of fact, in many ways, I should think it would be more difficult. My wife and I are in a Bible study right now with a group of men. And in that Bible study, we're going through the book of Acts. We just got to Corinth. Paul gets to Corinth. He has come from Athens. Things didn't go very well in Athens. Before that, he'd gone to Berea. Berea was a good place, except there was a problem in Berea. The problem was the Thessalonians. See, before Berea, Paul had been in Thessalonica. And though there was a good response there, there was a great number of Jews that were exceedingly angry. They had to flee Thessalonica, and they ran to Berea. But wouldn't you know it, those Thessalonians weren't happy enough just to get him out of Thessalonica. They chased him down to Berea and chased him out of Berea. He left Silas and Timothy in Berea, and he traveled to Athens. He confronted the men in Athens. Things didn't go real well. And then he ended up in Corinth. And when he was there, Paul and Silas, or excuse me, Silas and Timothy arrived. And it says that Paul had a vision. And in that vision, God spoke to him and said, Take heart. Be strong. Be bold. Speak up. I have many in this city, and you will not be injured. At that point in Paul's ministry, he was probably pretty low. So low, in fact, that God needed to encourage his heart to keep going. I can't say as though I've ever been that low as I've been knocking on doors, interacting with unsaved family members, friends, neighbors. But you know, we all have our fears of association. Paul knew he ought to speak. That didn't necessarily make it easy for him to speak. But you know, we are called to boldly associate ourselves with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul exhorted Timothy not long before his own death with these words. Please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy 1. Beginning of verse 7, we'll read through verse 14. Paul, writing to Timothy, he says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou, uh, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given unto us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 
but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. With Peter, as with many Christians in other countries today, the stakes were much higher than perhaps we have seen in this country. For him to associate himself with Jesus Christ here could mean terrible persecution. Peter knew what these men wanted to do to Christ. They wanted to kill him. So Peter stayed in the background, supporting Jesus from afar, but not allowing himself to be seen in association with him. Peter didn't stand with Christ. He stood off to the side by a fire barrel, surrounded by the servants of the high priest and the officers of his court. And he warmed his hands while the King of Glory, the Prince of Peace, stood under a mock trial, receiving false charges so that he could be put to death. Where do you stand this evening? When someone speaks on spiritual topics Do you stand with Christ or do you conceal your testimony? When someone asks you about your beliefs, do you dodge the issue or do you tell them regardless of what they might think? We don't need to be like those who shove their religion in other people's faces. This is neither productive nor is it godly. But we must not shy away from what we are who we are, nor should we conceal who it is we serve. I'll never forget. See, this can lead us to spiritual failure. It can lead us to failing, missing out on the opportunities that God has given to us. I was a junior in college. I had already been called to ministry. I was still in my two bachelor's degrees, criminal justice and computer science, software engineering. And in order to fulfill my criminal justice degree, I had to do two outside practicums. One of those I did was a ride-along with the police officers. I'd done that many times as an explorer. That was no problem. But I needed a second one, so I contacted the Douglas County Courthouse. And I asked if I might be able to just do a week-long practicum where I observed the happenings in a courtroom. Well, I received an incredible privilege And I was placed right in the office of a judge and worked right along her intern and got to interact with her, got to ask her questions, got to sit in on the court cases and look important, all of that great stuff. And I went with my my intern associate and she invited an intern from another um, office and we went out to eat one day and We started talking, and they asked me where I went to college, and I told them Pensacola Christian College, and of course that opened up the door. And I thought, well, this is good. But you know, it was a short lunch, 
I was a little tired that day. And he asked me a question. He asked me that proverbial question about the camel going through the eye of the needle. And you know, I, I had studied it. I knew what it meant. I knew what Jesus Christ was teaching. And you know what I said? You know what I said, right? I boldly proclaimed what Jesus Christ was teaching and jumped right into the gospel and boldly associated myself with Christ. Well, no, I didn't. I said, yeah, that can get really complicated. I prefer not to get into that. And he said, okay. And we moved on to whatever the next conversation was. And you know, I still remember it because I had an open door. I had an opportunity to place myself in Christ's camp and boldly proclaim the gospel. And I decided I'm just going to stand over here with the servants and the officers and warm my hands. I'll watch from afar. I'll pray for him. I missed it. We can fail through misguided loyalties. We can fail through unwilling associations. Third and finally, we can fail through outright denial. We can fail through outright denial. Verses 19 through 27. The scene shifts to the interaction between Jesus and Annas beginning in verse 19. I better get back there myself. There we go. The high priest then asked Jesus, verse 19, of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. What I have said unto them, behold, they know what I said. Annas asks Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answers. Jesus' answer was meant to make a point. It was meant to show just how frivolous this trial really was. Here you have the high priest questioning Jesus about what he had been teaching while bound. Jesus is bound as a prisoner, and he's saying, What have you been teaching, Jesus? Who are these disciples? What is your doctrine? As if Jesus had been seditiously spreading rumors and seditiously poking around in dark corners, giving hints of, of doctrine in order to stir up controversy. On the contrary, Jesus makes it clear that everything he has taught was well, well known. He didn't teach it in the shadows. He didn't go into back alleys and behind locked doors to teach his doctrine. He stepped into the temple, overthrew the tables of the money changers, and proclaimed the truth of God. He got up in front of thousands, fed the multitudes miraculously, and proclaimed repentance. Everyone knew what he taught. You could ask anyone in that room his teachings. They all knew. He sought to hide nothing, and he had nothing to hide. Well, this answer didn't go over very well with one of the officers that stood next to Jesus. Verse 22 says, And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, smacked him saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Would you answer the high priest that way? Jesus responds with absolute wisdom. Notice what he says. Verse 23. 
If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Notice the guard did not take issue with what Jesus said. With the fact that everyone has heard his doctrine. He only took issue with making the high priest look foolish, basically. But you know, it wasn't Jesus' fault that the high priest looked foolish because he was asking foolish questions. And it certainly wasn't worth being hit. So he says, if I do well, why in the world are you hitting me? Verse 24, now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. He says, I've heard enough. Let's get this formal trial underway. Let's get him before some Roman authority. Let's get this man killed. And now, after having taken just that short break, we turn back to Peter. Verse 25. Peter has been present for these events. We don't know how much he heard. We don't know what he saw, but we do know he was there. And he was there because he genuinely loved Jesus. Don't get me wrong. Don't get Peter wrong here. Peter loved Jesus Christ. Peter was concerned with what was happening to Jesus Christ. But at that moment... He was unwilling to associate with him. Now Jesus is being led away. When the people around him looked, they said this, verse 25. Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. Verse 27, excuse me, verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, saith, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Here is one of Malchus's relations. Wait a minute, I was there. Didn't I see you in the garden? Aren't you the guy that chopped off my cousin's ear or whatever relation he was to him? My kinsman's ear? Aren't you that guy that chopped off his ear? It's pretty obvious now. I mean, think about it. At some point, don't you just give in and say, yep, you got me. I indeed was him. You, you win. You've seen me. You've seen me. You've seen me. You've seen me. Everyone's seen me. Everyone knows who I am. I've been with him for years. I've stood at his side. I'm the guy. But he doesn't. It says in verse 27, Peter then denied again and immediately the cock crew. Now, it doesn't give us as much information here as some of the other Gospels, so I turn your attention to the book of Mark. You can turn there if you'd like, Mark 14. This gives a little more light upon Peter's disposition here. In Mark 14, we have the same account. It's in all four Gospels. And in verse 67 of Mark 14, We see Peter warming himself. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, And thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 68. But he denied, saying, I know not, neither understand I what thou sayest. And he went out into the porch and the cock crew. And a maid saw him again and began to say to them that stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again. And that was twice. Verse 70, And a little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, 
and thy speech agreeeth thereto. And notice verse 71. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom ye speak. Peter was backed into a corner, and instead of admitting that he was indeed an associate of Jesus Christ, he disassociated himself with Jesus Christ. He began to curse and to swear false oaths, those things that certainly Jesus would not have been approved of, certainly those things that people would not say, ah, there's a disciple of Jesus Christ. How did Jesus say that people would know that they were his disciples? If they loved one another. And here he is, he's got to prove to them that this wasn't him, that he wasn't the man, so he starts cursing and swearing and disassociating himself, outright denying Jesus Christ. In fear and in anger, he insisted that he had no knowledge of Christ. He has gone from simply an unwilling associate, willing to look at Jesus Christ and support him from afar, to outright denial. And in this denial, Peter's spiritual failure reaches its climax. In the John 18 account, we read simply that the cock crew, the sign that Jesus had given to Peter, that signifies his denial. But in Matthew 26.75, in Mark 14.72, and in Luke 22.62, the Gospels record what happened after the cock crew. We read this morning in, in the Luke passage what happened. We'll read now in the Mark passage, verse 72. And the second time the cock crew. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him. Before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought thereon, he wept. All three Gospels tell us that Peter recognizing what he had just done, went out of the court and he wept bitterly. He had outright denied the Lord whom he had followed, obeyed, defended, and loved. And you know, Peter loved Jesus still. And he was still a believer. And he was still a disciple. And he was still a follower. And he was still clean in the sense that Jesus Christ called him clean in John 13. But for all of that, for the fact that he was still a believer, and the fact that he was still on his way to heaven, and still a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he still loved Jesus Christ, he fell into complete spiritual failure. He denied Jesus Christ. This account in the Gospels is meant to serve for us as a warning. As I've mentioned before, it is not a warning about losing our salvation, but a warning about losing our testimony and our effectiveness. As we will see in Peter's life, spiritual failure is not unforgivable. He will be forgiven, he will be restored, and he will become an extremely effective minister of Jesus Christ. We're not looking at a man who has just failed forever but we're looking at a man who has indeed failed. And though spiritual failure is not unforgivable and not unrecoverable, it is devastating. And we must take steps to guard ourselves against spiritual failure. 
As we sit here in this room today, there's not a man or a woman or a child who is thinking, I'm going to fail one day. I'm going to be a spiritual failure one day. But as we look at the American church, and statistically speaking, there could be men or women or children in this room who will grow up and fail spiritually. Now, I'm not saying it will happen to anyone in this room, but it could. Perhaps it would begin with misplaced loyalties. Or maybe it would find its roots in failure or unwilling associations with Christ. But one day it might just happen that we're placed in a situation where our back is against the wall and we deny Him. Or we run from Him. Or we give it up. The solution. The solution, what is it? Well, the same solution that would have been effective for Peter. Can you imagine if all the way back in John 13, Peter would have listened when Jesus Christ was teaching about His death? Could you imagine if in Matthew 16, Peter would have taken it to heart that Jesus Christ called him Satan for trying to divert him from the purpose of going to the cross? If Peter would have learned the teachings of Jesus and recognized the teachings of Jesus and assimilated the teachings of Jesus properly, he would not have been here today in John 18, outright denying the only Lord and Savior that bought him. Christ had told them in the garden to watch and pray lest they fall into temptation. They fell asleep. Christ had warned them that they would scatter but they thought they knew themselves well enough to know that such things would never happen. Peter says, I'll give my life for you. Men and women, such things can happen. We must not fool ourselves into thinking that we are beyond such temptations, beyond such actions. We must not convince ourselves that we're strong enough. We must cling to the Word of God. We must hold fast to the teachings of God. We must apply the wisdom of the Word of God to our hearts lest we fall under the same spiritual failure in our own lives that Peter fell unto because he didn't heed the Word and the teachings of God. How well do you know the Word of God? How well are you taking those aspects of the Word of God that you know and applying them to your heart? How often do you read the Scriptures and you know that you're not obeying them or you know that you're not understanding them or you don't even have a desire so you're just letting it go in one ear and out the other and you're not taking the Word of God and earnestly soaking it in knowing that if you don't have the proper foundation of the Word of God in your life, you may just be a Peter one day. If you don't pursue and seek God's Word and God's knowledge in faith, then your foundation will be soft and it might just crumble. How are you doing this evening? Spiritual failure. We can fail through misguided loyalties. We can fail through unwilling associations. 
And we can certainly fail through outright denials. Where are you in your Christian life today? Again, don't go out of here under tremendous fear, but do have a proper fear. Lest you fall. Lest you fail. Let's pray.